Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Joint Action Podcast where we're discussing new insights into osteoarthritis onset. I'm regularly asked by both patients, health professionals and colleagues, what new developments are happening in this space that might provide pivotal changes to therapies. At this point in time, there is lots of improvement that can be made to improve our therapeutic armamentarium. Pain is still a huge unmet need as far as therapeutic targets is concerned. So there's lots of improvement that can be made. And despite the large prevalence of osteoarthritis, there is no clinically approved drug which provides a cure. Currently, most drugs focus on relieving symptoms such as pain. Experiments in the lab, however, have provided insight on osteoarthritis onset and progression and will likely guide therapeutic development. We know that osteoarthritis is a disease of the whole organ, meaning that any of the tissues involved in the synovial joint can be affected. The interplay between various cell types involved is complex and understanding the interactions between cartilage, bone, synovium, and other tissues in the joint might be critical to therapeutic development. Skeletal development likely plays a very important role in predisposition to disease. Through the identification of serious pathologies, such as various forms of dwarfism, what in medical terms are called chondrodysplasias, the role of transcription factors and epigenetics 
is increasing our understanding of disease genesis. The study of epigenetics in osteoarthritis, the mechanism by which the human genome alters its gene expression without changing the primary DNA sequence, has provided valuable information on novel risk factors for the disease. And these are potential therapeutic targets for osteoarthritis. Dr. Frank Beyer joins us on the show today entitled New Insights into Osteoarthritis Onset. And the focus of the discussion today will be on recent advances in osteoarthritis understanding with a particular emphasis on novel targets and epigenetics. Frank Beyer is the Canada Research Chair in Musculoskeletal Research at the University of Western Ontario and a member of Western's Bone and Joint Institute. He is a professor and chair of the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology, and his lab explores mechanisms controlling cartilage and joint biology using genetically engineered mice in combination with surgical, dietary, and activity manipulations. This is a natural fit with the objectives of the Bone and Joint Institute, an environment that's helped to foster collaborations with fellow researchers from other fields, such as clinicians and imaging scientists. As an engaged member of the Institute's Operations Committee, Dr. Bayer sees value in the Institute's priorities that improve his training program and that support the acquisition of additional research funds. He's published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and has given over 100 invited presentations. And his work is supported by the Canadian Institute of Health Research and the Arthritis Society. He was a member of the board of directors of the Osteoarthritis Research Society International and several editorial boards, including being deputy editor for Osteoarthritis in Cartilage. Frank, it's great to see you and thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, in the first part of the show, I usually just try to get to know uh, the person I'm speaking to a little bit better, both for myself and the listeners who are out there. But can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what your typical day looks like? Okay, absolutely. So I grew up in Germany, did my PhD there. And then I moved to Canada, first for a postdoc in Calgary, and then to my current position in London and Ontario. I used to work mostly in developmental biology, studying how the skeleton forms and grows in the first place, but then gradually transitioned into our current work on osteoarthritis. And as we might talk about later, those two areas, the, the development of the skeleton and osteoarthritis are quite linked. My typical day, one of the nice things about this job is there is no typical day. Every day is different. But I am a department chair, so about half my time I spend on meetings, organizing our teaching program, uh, yeah, on all kinds of committees, uh, HR stuff. And the other time, the other half, I try to spend on research, working with my team, discussing data, planning experiments, reading papers, uh, listening to seminars, things like this. So lots of different things, but every day is different. Yeah, and I think that variety is probably what also keeps us engaged and enthused moving forward. So it's so, so important. Yeah. Now, 
Frank, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Uh, I like to go outside, hiking, walking, biking. That's probably uh, what I like the most. I also like to read. I like to hang out with friends and spend time with my family. Yeah, when, when there's time. Well, it's a, it sounds like you've got a, a lovely environment to, uh, to get outside there as well. And uh, hopefully as the weather's starting to warm, you get to enjoy that a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. The next one's a little more complicated, but if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I'm very optimistic. I think I'm fairly laid back, almost Australian. <laughs> I'm passionate about issues like environment, social issues, health, of course. I'm, I'm probably not the most organized person and a not detail-oriented person. And I think that's been more than five words, a lot more. So I think everybody so, has a perception that everybody in Australia is very uh, laid back. I think we're um, very reflective and calm, but despite, I think, a lot of perceptions out there, I think most of us are pretty intense when it comes down to it. But I'm really interested in the, the social issues part. Are there particular social issues at the moment that are getting you more engaged than not? Well, I think I've always been quite passionate about, about anti-racism, of course, in, in North America, uh, anti-black racism and the indigenous racism is big, women's right. But I think what I'm also getting more and more tuned to is social disparities and how they, for example, affect health, growing up poor, with poor education, with lower quality food, how, how social disparity uh, affects health, for example. But then, of course, all these issues are related. Yeah. Well, I think these issues are really very pressing at the moment, I think particularly given the inequities that we have in our society. But I think as a, as a group of scientists that are also involved in a disease where these inequities, whether they be around race, uh, gender, but also socioeconomic inequality and uh, some of the barriers that people from different parts of society have at accessing healthcare and uh, getting healthy yeah. alternatives. It's so, so important to our disease as well. So it's good to, see, good to see you thinking about it. Now, the topic of the day is really to try to get a better handle on new insights uh, into osteoarthritis, particularly as it relates to potential therapeutic opportunities. And what I might start by doing, Frank, is if it's okay, just tell us a little bit about what the focus of your lab is, and then we'll dive into those topics a little bit further. Yeah, so the, the focus, the main focus of my lab is really understanding molecular mechanisms that drive osteoarthritis. And in particular, I think we're focused on early stages of osteoarthritis, what starts it and drives these first stages. So we use animal models to identify new molecular changes. And then we target, for example, specific genes that we think are important. We, we manipulate those genes in mice and see, does osteoarthritis still develop the same way or less or more? That's basically the main focus of my lab, looking at all kinds of different molecules. Yeah, and, you know, I guess just... Extending that a little bit further, one of our great friends and your good friends, Chris Little, has told me that, you know, he's cured 
osteoarthritis hundreds of times in different species of mouse. Presumably you've had a similar experience and see similar optimism coming from the animal field. Yeah, we created many mutant mice that, for example, don't respond with osteoarthritis when we do knee surgery. So yeah, we cured it many times and that shows both of strengths, but even more so the weakness of these animal models. I think they are important to understand mechanisms, but we, we got to do a much better job in making them relevant using right ages, right numbers, right sex, and so on. Yeah, and that's potentially a topic for another day, but I think the, yeah. the translation from the lab to the human insights and practical applications is not necessarily happening as well as it, it might at the moment. But irrespective of that, what have we learned that's, I guess, pivotal and critical from mouse models of osteoarthritis and how does this affect us when thinking about the human condition? I think we learned lots, lots of details, of course, of specific pathways. But I think two, two main things is maybe one is how development is linked to osteoarthritis, how we develop, how, for example, the shape of our joints when they develop, how, how they then affect our risk for osteoarthritis because the shape of our joints determine the loading patterns, for example. The other part, and that's where I think my lab spends quite a bit of time on, is that, of course, we have molecular changes in osteoarthritis, like in, in all other diseases. But there's different forms of osteoarthritis where we have some genes do something in, for example, an osteoarthritis that's induced by an injury, which we mimic by surgery on the knee. And then the same gene might do nothing when we just have an age-related form of osteoarthritis or an obesity-related form of osteoarthritis. So there's different molecular pathways in different types and different forms of osteoarthritis. That's something we learned from our studies in my lab and many others. Yeah, it's so, so important. So I might just dig into the shape aspect and then come back to the molecular piece uh, a little bit later. But at least from the shape perspective, in, at least in human studies, we're, we're learning a little bit more about the contact stresses and the mechanics in the joint that play potentially an important role in the onset of osteoarthritis. Are there parallels that you're seeing in mice and their skeletal development that might parallel to the human condition and some of what particularly imaging findings are learning about shapes of joints? I think if you look at the hip shape, there are certainly parallels where where it's a nice example where human studies showed there's variations in a gene called GDF5. Uh, give rise to bigger risk, higher risk for osteoarthritis. And if we model some of this in mice, we see that GDF5 determines the hip shape and determines the risk of osteoarthritis in the hip, for example. That's that's probably the, the most classical example of this. And the parallels there for GDF5, Frank, are they related to shape abnormalities like femoroacetabular impingement or FAI or dysplasia or... It's hard to say at this point. It's it's tough to say whether it's exactly the same because the anatomy is, is somewhat different in, in the mice, of course. But the the outcomes seem to be related in terms of uh, osteoarthritis forms. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, I think important parallels, and particularly for 
people out there who have hip osteoarthritis, we know that shape abnormalities are really important in predisposing to osteoarthritis. And various studies have suggested about 85 to 90% of a person's likelihood of developing osteoarthritis may come from abnormalities in the shape, both of uh, the proximal femur and pelvis. Yeah. From a molecular standpoint, you mentioned that there are different molecular changes that are, are occurring in, in mice that are older or that are obese or that are injured. Are there any that you see as particularly promising as far as either the understanding of the onset of the disease or potentially being therapeutic targets in people that have those different types of onset? I think so, yeah. I mean, we, we know by far the most about the post-traumatic models. These are the injury-induced models in, in animals where we have, for example, uh, clear inflammatory factors that might be important there and maybe less important in other forms of osteoarthritis. Uh, there might be pathways like the wind pathway, for example, which is a growth factor pathway really important in development of the skeleton and also in the maintenance. So I, I think there are some from our lab, there's a number of nuclear receptors, which are transcription factors, so, so gene regulator, regulatory proteins that play a role in different forms of osteoarthritis. And one nice thing with those proteins is that we have a lot of drugs that work on them already in the clinic for other diseases. So I think there are options there that we can follow up. None of us is ready for the clinic yet, but I think we have a lot of leads. So on, on that note, obviously, disease modification is a, a passion of mine and a great interest for many in the field. Um, and there are a number of disease modifying agents that are in late stage therapeutic development that more often than not, those trials just take a whole population of people that oftentimes have later stage osteoarthritis, irrespective of how they may have developed the osteoarthritis in the first place. Do you see better ways of stratifying populations and targeting treatments based on insights that you're getting in the laboratory? I think, I mean, I think that's where we have to get. Whether we are getting there, I think MRI certainly has a lot of potential to help with stratifying, but it's likely not going to be uh, one a tool that we can use very broadly in the population. But we can maybe combine it with more easy parameters, biochemical parameters, gait, and, and use the research to, to really correlate certain MRI findings, for example, with, with other parameters that we can measure more easily to help stratify patients. I think there's the obvious stratifications, whether it was an injury or not. There's BMI, there's some other clinical parameters, but I think there's lots of potential there, but it's we are not there yet. But yeah. I think it's key. Yeah, no, there's uh, a lot of room for improvement in our understanding and the application of those, even simple stratification methods, as you say, just yeah. the history of injury or a person who's above a healthy weight are relatively simple to apply and might provide opportunities for more targeted therapy. Now, another area that you've done a lot of work in is that in the role of epigenetics and osteoarthritis. So in the first instance, just tell us what epigenetics are and 
at least from the learnings that you've had, what role does this play in osteoarthritis? The field of epigenetics is a relatively new field and there's different definitions of it. I think I'll probably provide the most practical one as it's used. Basically, epigenetics is a number of molecular processes that regulate which genes are on and which genes are off. So for example, in osteoarthritis, we have certain genes that are being switched on. That includes, for example, genes for enzymes that break down collagen and other markers. So these genes are usually not very active, but in osteoarthritis, the genes are being turned on. And those processes that control whether the genes are on and off, many of them fall under this epigenetic mechanisms. There's a number of different pathways in epigenetics, but in a broad pattern, this is epigenetics controls which genes are on and which are off. And you mentioned a couple of genes that are upregulated and presumably those that are downregulated as well. Is this potentially, again, another opportunity for therapeutic advance and opportunities for identifying particular genes that might be upregulated that are causing further cartilage or other synovial joint tissue breakdown that could be switched down? Absolutely, yeah. These epigenetics regulators, they include a lot of proteins, but also nucleic acid, small RNAs and other RNAs. So there's actually a host, a whole host of potential ways we could use them. There could be classical ways using small molecule inhibitors, so classical drugs to affect some of them, either inhibit them or activate them depending on what we want to do. But then there's also the option to manipulate those RNA molecules in, in a type of gene therapy where we inject, for example, some of these uh, molecules into the joint. If we design them accordingly, we could make them stay there for a long time or being produced there actually within the joint cells. So they are staying as long as we want them to instead of having an injection every few months. So there is a, a lot of potential. And again, as we discussed before, lots of these approaches have been used quite successful in mice to cure OA. And none of them has made it yet to humans. But I, I think as, as we keep improving them, there's lots of potentials there. Yeah, it's an exciting time with lots of opportunity for, for therapeutic development. Now, Frank, is there anything else that you're doing in the lab that you're particularly interested in at the moment where you see important potential translational opportunities into the human condition? Well, for my lab, we are excited because we are finally increasing our collaborations with clinicians. We have a rheumatologist, Dr. Tom Apple, who is seeing osteoarthritis patients, but also working on very molecular mechanisms. We're working with a few physiotherapists and orthopedic surgeons. So where we are, we are trying to do one of some of those things to break these different fields and, and translate things faster. I think I'm getting more excited partially because of Tom's influence about the synovium. So I'm a cartilage biologist by training, and we know for, for quite a while now that osteoarthritis is not a cartilage disease, a joint disease. But my lab hasn't really ventured into the other tissues as much, but I'm getting quite interested in the synovium and, and different, both 
pro and anti-inflammatory mechanisms that we can explore and, and manipulate to solve osteoarthritis and also to promote regeneration. I think I, if we still have this dogma that cartilage, for example, does not regenerate. And I think there's exciting evidence that this is not true and that we might find different drugs or other ways to manipulate the cells and the tissue to regenerate and allow endogenous regeneration of joint tissues, which I think would be very exciting. Yeah, that's wonderful and really exciting work and really pleased to hear that you're broadening from the cartilage biologist into, into other joint tissues, uh, cognizant of the fact that there are lots of tissues involved in this but really pleased that you're also working closely in that translational space because i think the interactions between those people that predominantly work in the laboratory and clinicians and and other people both in the research and health professional space are so important for us uh, developing uh, new insights but particularly their application now frank usually towards the end of the show i usually just try and probe you a little bit more, again, in part for personal insight, but also hopefully because uh, the listeners will find it appealing. But if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Well, maybe it will surprise you because I am a molecular person, but I think what we should do, especially here in North America, we should build more bike paths and more hiking trails and reduce car traffic, make people be more active. And that's going to have uh, tons of positive influences, not only on joints and bones and osteoarthritis, but on basically every health aspect, whether it's cardiovascular, whether it's Alzheimer's, whether it's cancer, even keeping people active and being preventive. I think that would be the, I think it's the key step. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot we can do about the built environment and access to to green space and transport choices that are more active that I think would have a lot of positive influences on health in so, so many ways. Again, for personal insight, but how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? Well, it's actually got a little bit easier with COVID because before COVID, we were traveling once, twice, three times a month, spending half of our life in airports. Now there is a little bit more time and uh, try to read. We go to selected meetings, online meetings or seminars, learn still what you would learn at the conference, but we don't spend all this time traveling. Uh, so I I, th- I think it's just reading. I do, I, I do, for example, like to do grant reviews. I'm on many grant review panels and there you always see the newest, even before it gets published, you see the newest ideas, the newest findings. You see what people want to do five years down the road. So, so I find this exciting and learn a lot. It's interesting, isn't it? The impact of COVID and potentially making us somewhat more efficient by reducing our travel time and also at the same time reducing our carbon impact on the community. Now, are there any patient-friendly resources that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, so, I mean, I think this podcast is great. There's another one which I like, and you're probably familiar with, uh, it's HeyOA by Carrie Costello. Yeah, I think the Bone and Joint Decade has a number of good postings. In the US, there is the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance. They have posts. We'll include uh, some links in the show notes from today's show for those resources that Frank's mentioning. 
Now, I think my favorite question that I love, I love to get into uh, with different people is just trying to find out why they do what they do. What motivates you to do what you do, Frank? Well, I think so. I'm, I'm a scientist and I, I like to find out new things and I like to have new exciting findings, see problems there, try to do a little part to help solve them and find the science findings that are important. And the other big part for me is, is working with trainees. I really enjoy working with particular PhD students. I think they are they come very new to the field and then they grow tremendously over three or four or five years and, and become experts in their field. I, I really enjoy that. That keeps yeah. me going as well. Yeah, I think the younger generation and particularly increasing the capacity of the number of people who are in a field who are well-trained is so, so important and such a fulfilling period of their lives, but also fulfilling for us to spend time with them as they grow and develop. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? I might go with the with the slogan, OA is a serious disease. I think oh, extending it to the bone and joint diseases in general. I think they have such an enormous impact, those diseases together, and they are just not recognized as, as having that impact. If your back hurts, if your knee hurts, you're not going to be active and then your risk for everything else goes up. But I, I think we got to give these diseases the recognition and the research funds, for example, but all, overall the attention we need because they have such huge impacts. Yeah, I think um, in general, given the prevalence and the impact that this has on the society, it's surprising how passive we are as a whole community about our approach to these problems and the fact that more often than not, people are just accepting that this is who they are now and it's part and yeah. parcel of growing older. But there's so much more that can be done. And as you suggest, you know, potentially pouring that either into their own self-improvement and healthcare change, but also potentially considering philanthropic opportunities to support others who are doing work in this space. Now, is there any one piece of advice knowledge or wisdom you'd like to give to people out there with osteoarthritis? I tell them what I tell my mice. <laughs> no, I don't tell them anything. I stay active. Don't, don't rest those joints. Work them and make sure you, you are active. You keep your weight under control. You have strong musculature and, and use those joints. Yeah, I think that physical activity message is one that we hear on a regular basis and hopefully one that gets reinforced to the listeners out there. And um, here's hoping that your communication with your mice has similar similar reinforcement there as well, Frank. Really, really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. And thank you so much for the insights you provided. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to chat to you about it. It was a great pleasure for me too. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Frank. Here's hoping that many of you have gained some insights from the fantastic conversation that Frank just shared with us. We know that animal studies have provided valuable information on osteoarthritis pathology. And with this, we hope to propel therapeutic target development. Specific pathways and molecules have shown promise and provide further understanding of the pathophysiology of osteoarthritis and its genesis. We still need, however, further discovery research to determine more joint pathologic mechanisms and therapeutic targets in specific joint tissues to improve overall health.
This is a really exciting area, one that needs your support and also hopefully one that will provide us greater therapeutic opportunities moving forward. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.